Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, you guys, welcome to today's episode of the Limitless Grid podcast. Super excited about the story I'm about to share, and it's Jeremy Courtney. Jeremy is the co-founder and executive director of the Primitive Love Coalition. It's an international organization based in Iraq that provides life-saving heart surgeries to Iraqi children, and he also trains local doctors and nurses. Um, in today's episode, Jeremy talks about why he moved to Iraq with his family and what made him start this organization and so so much more this man is truly truly incredible his concept of love first and ask question later has helped so many people and he truly defined what human being can do if they lead a life with compassion and empathy and Jeremy has literally saved thousands of people's life and inspires people every single day and I truly truly hope he inspires you as well. So without further ado, everyone, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you. Excited to be with you. Thanks. Um, so I just finished reading your book and it was incredible. So I just want to say to my listeners, if you want to go get his book, I'll put it on my show notes. It will definitely change your life. But um, I had a question. How did you and your family end up in Iraq? Uh, it was really after the the attacks on America on September 11th, um, I think, was a real important moment for us. Um, I know you're in New York right now. I remember where I was when, when the attacks happened, like everyone else. And it was a hugely transformative moment for, for us, for our community. And I didn't leave for Iraq that day, but I think ultimately this conversation about um, kind of this clash of civilization, that theory that was being uh, proposed in the world at that time and the debate surrounding that and Christianity versus Islam and the West versus the, the rest and all that kind of stuff was in the air. And I think the, the September 11th attacks really stirred a lot of that up again. And we just found ourselves drawn into that conversation more and more. And we didn't want to give in to this idea that um, we just had to perpetually be at war and and at, at clashing with one another. And uh, so ultimately, over the course of a couple of years, our hearts were drawn further and further into the Middle East, and we ultimately ended up moving in the middle of the Iraq War. Wow. Did you um, initially go to help the war widows? We did. Um, there was another organization that we had heard about, a small uh, organization that was helping war widows and orphans. And we came alongside them to work with them and help them. And uh, that's what got us into the country pretty quickly after moving into Iraq. Um, some of the work that they were doing had slowed down. And it was, it was kind of a frustrating time for us because no one moves into the middle of a war to to kind of sit around and and waste time. I mean, we, we had these grand aspirations and these big visions about what we were going to do. And it just wasn't playing out that way. It was going really slowly. And um, I met a little girl in this coffee shop who was in need of a life-saving surgery. And in the process of going down that, that path with that family and trying to see what we could do to help that one little girl, we ended up um, 
just getting further and further drawn into their story and into their community. And so we ended up uh, leaving that organization and starting our own um, in large part just as we got to know this family more and their community and a, a lot of kids like her who were in a similar situation. And I think it gave us an opportunity to to get to work and to take action rather than feel like we were somehow sitting around and going slowly. And it was just kind of the perfect um, storm of events. And, and we started our own thing. I mean, when I was reading that book, I was just putting myself in your position or in your wife's position. And for me, it just... I don't think I would ever have that level of courage to do what you and your wife did is to go in Iraq in the middle of a war and, you know, help people there. How long did it take for you guys to come to that conclusion? And what was the point when you're like, you know what, I'm going to go do that? Uh, man, it's a, it's a complicated thing to try and think back on and figure out exactly how it all came about. Um, it didn't, in some ways it felt big at the time and in some ways it felt inevitable and in some ways it felt small. I mean, it was like, um, a lot of it was just one step after another. And then you, you look back over the course of a couple of years and you realize that, um, you know, you've covered some serious terrain, some serious ground, but I don't know. I don't know how to put it into words. I, I think looking back, I just know that it, it felt often like one foot in front of the other. Did you always live your life saying that you're going to love first and ask questions later, later? Or was it your experience in Iraq that inspired you to live like that? No, it definitely came about in Iraq. Um, you know, in, that, in those war years, a lot of people surrounding us, whether military or militia, terrorists, I mean, private security, a lot of people sort of had this posture, this motto or mantra that said, shoot first, ask questions later. It was sort of a kill or be killed um, type of environment at times and in certain places. And I, I wasn't of the kill or be killed variety, for sure. I didn't, that wasn't really how I grew up or quite how I thought about things. But but just something about being in the midst of it and the idealism of, of what we had come to do and thinking that we could make a difference and uh, trying on some level, I think, coming to a fresh understanding or a fresh perspective on, on um, the faith that I had inherited from my family, born into a Christian family, grew up saying I was a Christian. Um, but I guess somehow in the context of, of being at war and feeling afraid and the uncertainty of all that, um, it allowed me, I guess, maybe to read some of that differently and think about some of that differently. And it dared me to take it seriously or, or not take it at all. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. the option was kind of believe in this stuff or, or maybe even believe isn't the right word, um, give give your life to this way give your life to this particular uh tradition or, or and what it claims of you or just dispense with the whole thing to altogether break with it and and do something else and i think while trying to explore that and trying to decide what would it look like to take jesus seriously um i think it was out of that search out of that exploration that this idea came what if we could turn that on its head that that killer be killed that shoot first, ask questions later. What if we 
could turn that on its head because that doesn't sound like the Jesus way to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what if we could actually be a people who would love first, ask questions later? What if there was something uh, more sacred, more beautiful than just trying to stay alive? Um, what if what if the goal wasn't to to just you know make it to make it to old age, you know, or something like that? Um, the the people that we were around, uh, some people I remember, some military people having this saying where they they talked about how it's better to be judged by twelve than carried by six. Uh, the idea being that it'd be better to to kill, to mm-hmm. shoot first, and have to go to trial and be judged by your peers than it would be to be carried by six pallbearers in your coffin to your grave, and the the license the the freedom that that gave to just kill shoot protect yourself it was really worrying to me and um, so we just tried to orient our life what if what if there was something more valuable than staying alive uh, what if the goal wasn't to just avoid landing in a coffin carried by six of your friends to the grave what if yeah like dying is is the easy part really it's it's yeah. the living it's really tricky. And so we really just started focusing on, on living, not, not staying alive, but living. How are we going to live? Yeah. It's so interesting. Like when I was reading your book, um, there were people who were literally trying to kill you. And I mean, you're still in Iraq right now. And there were so many situations where it was almost impossible for 99% of people to live there and have a mindset that love first and ask questions later. What were some of the hardest times in your time in Iraq and what kept you going? Uh, the hard times come and go. They're, they're kind of seem to come in seasons. Uh, I, I think kind of like peaks and valleys. Um, the, the valleys, some have been very personal, personal betrayals by very, very close local friends, um, kind of personalized threats, uh, and then ranging to more impersonal threats where one group wants to do harm to our group. And it's not really personal. We get caught up in a broader category of people like Americans or uh, humanitarians or Christians or non-Muslims or whatever. And um, I, I don't know. I, I think that um, each has its own fear that comes with it. Each has its own reward that comes with it when you can press into the situation and choose to love anyway. Um, but I, I'd say that the way we've endured through these things is by cultivating a culture and a posture as a family and a team where we really work to see people mm. and not problems. Um, when you're others oriented, when your whole life is generally more geared towards serving others than it is toward protecting yourself, uh, then the suffering, the hard times, the threats, the loss, it, it all starts to take on meaning. Um, if all of your life is oriented toward building walls and locking people out and putting locks on the door and insurance and save my own life, then any any ding 
against that, any threat, any loss, any suffering, it it just sets you back. It takes the wind out of your sails. It it doesn't have meaning because it's all just self-oriented. It's myopic. It's self-referential. Um, but when you're serving others and someone comes in your way, you you find it easier to push through that because it's not about you. It's about serving other people. So I think there's just something about that that others focus that has allowed us to keep going. Oh. Um, you, you also mentioned that you don't lean or left or right of any extreme side. You lean forward with lo- love in terms of your beliefs. So I think like leaning forward with love should definitely help you as well. Yeah, for sure. I think there's this idea that um, it, it's hard. It's complicated. And we all have our personal politics and, uh, you know, our various faith traditions and cultures that we grow up in can affect all that. But um when we get too far on our own side, too far with our own people, too deep in the echo chamber of our own tribe, and we don't uh, really work those muscles, that that imagination to stay with the other, to stay on the other side, to stay in relationship, um, it does become really hard to pursue peace. It, it can become hard to, to see the other people as human. And if you don't see other people as human, of value, then it, it can be hard to to endure hard things on their behalf because they're not worth it. They're just animals. They're monsters. They're crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, this idea of trying to stay balanced and not going too deep on any one side has become an important part of of how we view the world. Um, I want to go back to your work. So you mentioned that where you were helping, one in seven children were born with birth defect. Was there a reason why there was so many birth defects? Uh, There are some reasons, but scientifically, knowing how to draw a causal relationship where where you can scientifically say this thing caused this uh, birth defect, for example, is just a really problematic uh, claim to make, particularly in the middle of war where scientific research and studies were not carried out very well. So I'd say that there are suspects um, that we have, but it would be difficult at this point to prove any of them guilty, uh, if you think in legal terms. Mm -hmm. Um, So the suspects would be uh, something as kind of normal and banal as intra-family marriage, uh, marrying your first cousin or your second cousin, which is still fairly common in tribal societies like Iraq. Uh, tribal, intertribal, intrafamily marriage has a, an important role in society in terms of family cohesion and economics and geography and, and different things like that. And so um, it's still widely practiced. But the downside is when you marry your first or second cousin, you, you potentially increase your risk of giving birth to children who have birth defects. So there's some very uh, kind of normal uh, run of the mill daily things like that. And then there's some extremely scary, nefarious kinds of suspects like Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons against, uh, the people of Iraq. Um, namely sulfur mustard gas is, is suspected to cause maybe a four times increase in the number of children who are, are born with, uh, heart defects. So 
Saddam used sulfur mustard gas inside Iraq multiple times and uh, where populations were exposed to that, there's reason to believe that kids would have been born with birth defects at a higher rate. Um, and then fast forwarding from that, some people speculate that the UN sanctions against Iraq during the early 90s in particular uh, caused a lot of women and children to get sick. Um, there's debates over that, but if a woman gets particularly malnourished while, while pregnant, you know, it can cause a heightened rate of birth defects. And then um, probably the most, uh, the one that concerned me the most as an American, because it was happening contemporary with, with my time here in Iraq, were the claims of Iraqis that American weapons were causing massive spikes in birth defects. And so in cities like Fallujah, the people claimed it's, it's American weapons that are making us sick. It's when the Americans started bombing us in the years after that, uh, our kids started getting sick. And there were just a lot of people who were pointing the finger, Americans, Brits, Europeans across the board, and certainly Iraqis were saying, no, it's American usage of depleted uranium munitions that are making kids sick. Um, and then just a general, like the stress that comes with war, the, the stress that comes upon women, pregnant women during war is, is known to, to be very, uh, have adverse effects on pregnancy. And so uh, war is bad for everyone. And, and if there are particular weapons being used, it has the potential to cause even worse fallout across the country. But we can't prove any of that stuff from where we sit today. It would, those would just be the lineup of suspects that, that people would list. Yeah. Well, while I was reading it, I was just thinking, like, you think war has ended, but its side effect goes on for years, if not generations to come. Yeah, exactly. Um, another thing that was really inspiring was to see that, you know, um, there were families who were willing to send their kids to Turkey and Israel to get heart surgeries because they had the best technique at that point um, when you guys were doing your uh, initial when you were initially starting to send kids to get heart surgeries um, how was how was that convincing families to send their kids to Israel uh, it was not easy um, in some cases but in other cases it actually it was easy it really depended on the family uh, some families didn't care and didn't want to give in to the um, kind of rhetoric or the propaganda that would would suggest that they couldn't do whatever was in their power to save their child's life. And other families um, maybe did give in to the propaganda. It's hard to break from from years of brainwashing. And then other families still didn't want they weren't giving in to the brainwashing per se that. Israel is our enemy necessarily, or Israel will harm us. But they were, they were aware that maybe their neighbors would harm them or the militia or the, the terrorists would harm them. So maybe they were happy to send their kid to Israel, but they still had to think about the consequences. Um, our neighbors aren't as open-minded as we are. The terrorists will punish us even after we've saved our child's life. And so is it, is it worth it? You know, um, I didn't even understand all the complexities of that uh, when we were working through it. Um, and in some ways, probably didn't even understand the complexities when I wrote that first book. 
but I, I think I see it all with a little more nuance and a little more grace maybe today than I did in the early days. Um, I mean, your book, I think it was published in 2013, but in 2014 when ISIS took over, I mean, when ISIS was trying to take over Iraq, how was working in the front line? Yeah, I mean, that really brings us to, to where we are today. Um, up until this point on the call, we, on this podcast, we've talked mostly about kind of the medical side of our work, where we started. But after ISIS uh, took over about a third of the country and controlled about a third of Syria as well, millions and millions of people were being driven from their home. And we were in this position to to provide people with uh, you know, everything that people need to stay alive in the midst of crisis, food, water, medicine, shelter, jobs to get their life back on, on track. And so that's really what we've been focused on in, in the last number of years since the rise and gradual decline of ISIS is uh, what we call this kind of first in, last to leave strategy, where we try to be fast to the front lines with emergency food and water where people have been starving under uh, terrorism or tyranny, uh, maybe for years. Um, that's the first in part, emergency response. But then we stick around in these communities. We have long-term commitment to these places. You know, this is our home. These, this is where we work, Syria and Iraq and and beyond. Uh, we live here. You know, I'm I'm not living in New York or D.C. Uh, trying to orchestrate work an ocean away. This is this is our home and this is where we've committed ourselves. And so um, we think of ourselves and, and commit ourselves, challenge ourselves to be last to leave these places. We want to stick around with the people of Syria and the people of Iraq and help them stand on their own two feet again. Uh, and so we do job, we, we do job creation and help start businesses and rebuild schools and hospitals and do infrastructure development, whatever we can do to leave a lasting impact. Um, so it's this idea of being fast and being last uh, into into conflict and then helping people stand on their own two feet again. Did you ever want to leave when ISIS was rising in Iraq? I'm sorry, can you ask that again? Did you ever feel like leaving when ISIS was rising in Iraq? Um, we didn't. Um, we had a lot of friends head for the door, and, and we understood that because uh, having a rich community of people who could provide analysis in the middle of a, a, a frenzy like that was, was a really rare thing, to, to have a, a group of Muslims who are Sunni and Shia, to have Arabs, Turkmen, uh, Kurds, Assyrians, um, to have Muslim and Christian, to, to have that rich group of people from the poor to the powerful was rare. And so a lot of our friends headed for the door. But for our part, we had that community of people who, because of our years of work all over the country, in the poor places and the, the wealthier places and work with government officials and saving the lives of poor children, we just had a, a really rich network of people who could help us understand what was going on. And so we chose to stay. We felt like uh, we had reason to believe they are not going to overrun the whole country. Um, it's horrible for millions and millions of people right now, but we believe these things are going to stop them. We believe 
after that, we're going to have a way to respond. And uh, in any case, we've spent the last, at that point, we would have said we've spent the last, uh, I don't know, five, seven years of our life going into these hard places like Fallujah and Tikrit and into the Mosul area um, that ISIS now controlled. And, and we cared about those people. We cared about those places. And we didn't want to be part of the surrender. We, we wanted to be part of the response. And so um, when major magazines in America were running front page cover stories with Iraq on fire and it said the end of Iraq, we took pretty much our whole organization and all of our resources and slid it into the center of the table and we gambled um, a lot of money on the future of Iraq and said, we're, we're going to stick around for this. And it's proven to be, um, I think, one of the most rewarding decisions of our life. Well, I'm you know, constantly working on my faith life and you, from like reading about you, researching you, you have such a strong faith. How can one cultivate that level of faith where you decide to love even in the middle of a war? Well, to be honest, the, the love first mantra that we started out with early in the war, it hasn't aged very well for us. That was a, it's kind of a young man's uh, motto because the, the idea, if you remember, was to love first, ask questions later, just like our friends were saying they wanted to shoot first, ask questions later in order to protect themselves. And the truth is, I think both for them and for us, the not only do the questions come, you can't hold them off. The answers come. Uh, if you live any time in a, in a hard place like this or really anywhere else in life, you, you cannot stop the answers that life has to bring you from coming. Mm. Uh, the answers are pain, death, destruction, sadness, despair, uh, depression, bankruptcy, breaking up with someone you love, losing a parent or a child. I mean, those answers, they just come at us. And so the idea that we would love first and ask questions later, it just didn't age well because, because the questions came and then the answers came and, and we were already on our heels by betrayals and, and threats and, and friends getting kidnapped and killed. And um, I think around the time that ISIS was, was bearing down on so much of the country, we really shifted our posture. And um, it wasn't about this sort of naive bravado that we were going to be the people who love first, ask questions later. We really just had to reckon with and face up to the fact that the world is scary as hell. That it just is. And trying to deny the fear or shame other people for being afraid or shame other people for talking about scary things like that is not a helpful posture in, in a scary world where there is real pain and harm that can befall us. Um, we just decided to embrace the fear and say, okay, so if this is true of the world, if the world is scary and um, if the pain is going to come and the hard times are going to come, who are we going to be? And we just decided that we were going to recommit ourselves in the face of that pain to be a people who would love anyway. And so that, that's the answer for us today. It's not that we love first and ask questions later anymore. Uh, I, I'd say I'm too old for that in a lot of ways because I, I know all the answers or I, I know a lot of answers at least about, about what will happen when you do that. Um, so in middle age, so to speak, I would say that I've, I've just recommitted my life to trying to be a person who would embrace the pain of the world and love anyway.
Um, for my listeners, if they want to contribute to your organization, where should they go, and what would be the best way to contribute? Um, I would love to meet you there and have uh, more dialogue and more uh, support and really just walk forward together. I think the easiest way to do that is to join us at preemptivelove.org. All of our social, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook is all um, preemptive love. That's P-R-E-E-M-P-T-I-V-E, love, preemptive love. So uh, that would be the best way to keep up with our our daily updates from the front lines. And uh, one of the things that we're rolling out here shortly is, is making sure that we bring this conversation home to the neighborhoods where you are as well. So this has never been about just bombs and bullets in, in places like Iraq and Syria for us. We want to be a community of peacemakers all around the world. And so one of the things that we say is the front lines are where we live. And so in coming days, we'll be um, giving more information about our front lines communities that are going to be um, rolling out across America as well, where we can gather together on the U.S. side of things and, and Australia and Europe and beyond to, to walk this road together. Uh, I know uh, you have to leave soon, but I want to ask you the last question. What is your definition of courage? Oh, man, I'd say the definition of courage that I'm probably working on right now is um, it's probably back to that comment I made about kind of daring to live a life that's others oriented. I think um, we're mostly taught and nurtured on this idea that we have to protect ourselves and serve ourselves and build safeguards for ourselves. And it's all well-intentioned, but it can become very self-referential, self-absorbed. And um, I think it takes a certain kind of bravery and there's definitely a kind of reward when you, you take heart, courage to um, be others oriented and, and trust it. That's the way that we actually find life. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really, really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, you guys. Thank you so, so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope Jeremy's story inspired you as much as it has inspired me. And if this podcast has added value in your life in any way, shape, or form, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave a comment so I can have more incredible people like Jeremy. And I'll talk to you guys next week.